breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Join me in this uh, conversation about the latest in the battle against political Islam and the battle for national security against that threat that uh, fell off the radar of many politicians, many media experts, and others that simply go with the squeakiest wheel, if you will. And now with the new president in the White House, a whole new slew of issues will certainly come as the so-called fourth estate, the media, will go into now its uh, obsequious mode of actually becoming the state news. And, you know, if you don't agree with me, fine. Uh, But watching the coverage of even the first few days of the Biden administration has uh, led anyone with any rationality, should lead anyone to begin to question whether there's any any objectivity, questions about... um, A lot of the agenda that's been done in the first few days of executive orders, reversing things uh, uh, quickly with whiplash uh, from the border wall to uh, so-called immigration ban, which we talked about last week's episode, and uh, so many other issues and so-called call to unity, when in fact there's a demonstration of some of the most radical positions have been immediately shifted overnight. But the media won't cover that. We'll cover it here, and that's what this ep- that's what this program is about. Keeping the eye on the ball, keeping the eye on the ball in national security, continuing to focus on the fact that predominantly, and I've talked, I know, about COVID, about public health and other things, but the predominant mission of this program is Muslim Reformation, is the adaptation of modern Islamic thought into modernity, into secular liberal democracies. And the current administration will wield a whole new set of opportunities to highlight the influence of Islamists, to highlight areas that we need to progress. I've been critical, certainly, of some of the things we could have done in the last four years that we did not. But some of that was put in the back burner as we continue to push forward in our mission. But the agenda of everyone, understandably, has been on the pandemic and keeping Americans healthy, and withdrawing us from needless wars, where we've proven that the military solutions is not a solution, but rather we need, when the military is not a solution, what is? Simply avoiding it, letting the Russians, the Iranians, the Khomeinists, the Muslim Brotherhood, and others lead? Absolutely not. They're evil. They're evil, each with their own flavor of trying to to dominate the regions, trying to dominate our communities. And now the fight goes on. This week, I want to talk to you about a couple things going on. One is, believe it or not, the legalization of pot has has brought to the fore sort of this battle for Sharia in Detroit. A Muslim-majority area, municipality, has come into conflict with the liberal left. And it sort of is a harbinger for what happens when the Islamists dominate the narrative. We're also going to talk about the French, the French declaration that they asked to be signed this week. They launched a charter 
with the CFCM. We'll talk about what that charter means for the move forward for the Licite, the secularist culture of France. And last, and I'll probably start with this, is in the BBC they had a news story this week about students frustrated with the inability to have with the inability to have school loans given in a Sharia compliant fashion. What does that mean? Now with my oldest uh, as a freshman in college, we've been looking at school loans and and uh, American Muslims in general have been dealing with loans whether it's mortgages or or any area and the Islamists continue to insist that interest is haram, forbidden in Islam. Is that true? Let's get into that topic. And it's very relevant because now President Biden here in the United States, that was a BBC story. The BBC story this week said Muslim students still waiting for government funding plan. And what are they talking about? I'll get to that in a second. But in their discussion, President Biden this week has already talked about giving students forgiveness, forgiveness about student loans. And how much money does that entail? We'll see. More blank checks in a system that is trillions and trillions of dollars in debt. Who's going to pay for that? How? In which generation? But, you know, you look at Sharia compliant. Let me get all of you up to speed on what that means. The interpretation of most faiths of the Abrahamic tradition, the Judeo-Christian tradition, and the Islamic tradition, I'll get to Islam and the Islamist interpretation of interest in a second, but the Judeo-Christian tradition has been that usury, inordinate exploitative amounts of interest, is evil, is unethical, is immoral, is corrupt. And that's where loan sharks and other things, what level of percent of interest becomes usury? That's debatable. But most would argue that definitely over 30% and most likely over 20% interest is usury because of the way compounding and other things work. That brings us to the Islamic interpretation. And the Quran, just like in the Old Testament, it does talk about forbidding usury, the term riba. Many scholars interpret riba to mean any type of interest in finances. I was taught by other Arab linguists and scholars that riba means usury. It doesn't mean all in forms of interest. Now the principle of forbidding interest in Islamic theology is that the bank may take some risk and then charge you interest and they own the asset if it's your house, they own the um, physical assets of your business or, or whatever it might be, including collections and other things in order to maintain some equity holding and collateral for the loan that they're giving. Now, those balances, if you will, are part of a relationship in a shared risk. Now, is there shared risk? When a bank gets a fixed interest and if the if the loan defaults, they get the entire amount, they're actually not taking that much risk, are they? The person asking for the loan is taking most of the risk in making sure that business works. Now, 
the bank should get something in return for footing the bill up front and providing that equity that provides the business the means by which to operate and succeed, be it your family business in your home and your mortgage, or be it your daytime business as a small business operator or whatever that loan might be. Now, the principle in what has become termed Sharia finance, which I, I dislike the term Sharia finance because Sharia to me implies 13th century interpretations based on the codified laws that are today's interpretation of Sharia. But anyway, Sharia in Arabic means Islamic jurisprudence or God's law. So there's nothing wrong with the term per se. The question is, its human interpretation today is quite backwards for the most part. Now, I have to tell you, there is some very important principles to be learned in what is Islamic financing principles, which I don't necessarily think is something specific to Islam, but it's sort of a principle in which if you're going to go into a business deal with somebody, there should be some equal sharing of the risk so that it's not just one party taking all the risk, and if the business collapses, the original party then comes out whole, and one party comes out with a massive loss of time and energy. It should be shared. And that's sort of the principle, is that there should not be a fixed. The problem with interest is that it's a fixed profit that the bank is making and returning, and that the generation of profit from the business and others is from the individual that's actually running the business versus the bank is variable and can be losses versus from month to quarter to to year to uh, to gains while the bank has a fixed interest fixed profit with basically very little risk because it has the asset that it can fall back on and then demand immediate liquidation now having said that by taking that principle, which is a moral good, and saying that interest is forbidden, it's, I think a lot of the jurists of Sharia are intentionally taking what many of us in the capitalist free market world look as the invisible hand of economics, of economic freedom and free markets that will operate in a way in which individual contract law is allowed to happen, and they make that into a fixed hand of the clerics determining what is and what is not forbidden. The clerics are not economic experts, even if they try to be. Just like in medicine, I often uh, have been very well trained in the past 20, 30 years in medical ethics, and it sort of uh, irritates me beyond belief to see imams often take significant positions on end-of-life matters of futility, pain and suffering, code status, and other things in the end of life, and yet they have very little understanding of medicine. And yes, they may have understanding of theology and matters of life and death as far as God and Islamic theology is concerned, but when you don't also have an, a balanced understanding of the science of medicine, you end up offering opinions that are very, very limited and often very harmful to the families. And this is the same thing we see in economics, is that without flexibility of thought and with a very rigid interpretation of what riba or interest means, riba means actually usury. Now, I like the, the principle of a 
shared risk, but that doesn't make it then apply only to interest. That can be applied to principles. What happens with Sharia finance that banks, as we see in many of the banks uh, that include some British banks and others in Europe, and they've tried to find uh, wedge markets for Muslims, which they do simply for economic gains. They have a huge market that they feel are not coming to their banks, so they work with the clerics to provide a so-called Sharia finance portfolio that is interest-free. What do they become? Well, those portfolios become lease and other types of schemes. And I tell us, I say schemes because they are often uh, uh, generated in a way in which they say it's not interest, but yet there's a fixed fee that the bank gets. And they call it rent to lease, lease to buy, whatever it might be. But the bottom line is, is, it is a different type of economic arrangement. And then when you look back at the total amount paid by the consumer of the loan, of the shared risk arrangement, often the lease arrangements end up paying more to the bank than an interest arrangement would have. Now, when the interests are variable, they'll, they'll say, well, at least with leasing, it's fixed. And you know how much you're paying. And it's not an interest rate with a, with a compound and additional fees on a monthly basis. And call it what you will, tomato, tomato, it's a fee paid to the bank that's fixed. And there's no shared business arrangement. Now, I do think that if you talk to private equity firms and other things, those things might be more Sharia compliant. And I hate the term Sharia compliant, I'll say that again, may be more principled in the free market areas of the spirit of a shared risk in business partners. So is the bank, is the investor a partner or are they simply fronting cash and their business is cash fronting and you pay a charge for that? I think when you are engaged with somebody who's fronting cash in the business of charging you for that, that is a much less ideal situation than actually a business partner with you. Having said that, I don't see any problem with fixed interests. I have, whether it's in, in buying my home or, or investments or whatever it might be, and also with my oldest now who's going to school, we, we talked about the need for some student loans, as almost every kid in school has nowadays. And a shout out to my Zach. Happy birthday as he turned 19 this weekend. God bless you. We're so blessed to have you. But these student loans, back to the student loans, if the student loans are going to become Sharia compliant, I'm a little, uh, a little concerned that, yes, the, the um, public may, may have a benefit, may need, a, may need to come up with an arrangement for those students that refuse to provide that. But if you look at the BBC story that was aired on January 23rd, 2021, it said these students have been waiting. They were promised by various prime ministers over the past eight years plans for government funding that included Sharia-compliant schemes that did not have interest, that were interest-free. Now, just like I've said for vacation, for fasting, for other things, yes, we need to have the ability to practice our religion freely. 
but that should not be a accommodation that is special. It should be appropriate and not provide either less or excess benefits from any other individual, but simply an accommodation. In the United States, those accommodations, uh, we can talk about the debate about those accommodations. Um, teachers that have uh, asked off for going to Hajj and uh, others I've talked about in my book about what the level of accommodation is. And some of them go to the Supreme Court debating whether those accommodations were too much or too little. And whether it was religious bias or actually an attempt at equality in denying or approving those religious accommodation requests. And those debates have included desires to wear hijab in the military, desires to wear a beard, and now to this financing. All I can tell you is I'm very concerned if Muslims get a carve-out for cash handouts without any interest while other people still pay an interest because they claim they, they, they are honest enough to say it's not forbidden from their faith, then that's unfair. And then if they work with a fixed scheme of leasing to buy whatever it is, what is this carve-out that works for Muslims and that isn't an unfair advantage or disadvantage for Muslims? So I think that's really important. And I think, I hope some of the, the walkthrough with you on where Sharia finance comes from and the ability to avoid interest Again, I think it's about high interest. It's not about low. Yes, ideally, there should be shared risk, but it doesn't have to be that way. It's sometimes just impossible to have mass economic provisions for individual consumers to be able to buy things unless you have the ability to loan money. And that's what banks do. It's interesting. There was a World Zakat Fund that 15 years ago decided it was going to pool billions of dollars of Muslim assets and charity and begin to determine what was actually good charity and what wasn't. And our American Islamic Forum for Democracy highlighted what some of the statements and positions were of their Sharia jurists that were determining what was Sharia-compliant charity donations and zakat, the Arabic word for the Islamic word for charity. And they had offices based in London, and they sent us a threatening letter because we criticized. And all we did was expose the words and the speeches and the sermons of many of the clerics on that fund. I think the fund went away. I don't know what happened to it later, but it started off with a bang with $100 billion, I believe. Maybe it's still there. I don't know. But all I can tell you is that the Islamist circuit, the Islamist establishment uses the Sharia finance and other aspects of charity, etc., in order to wield power and take away the invisible hand that Adam Smith talks about of free markets and capitalism and make it their hand of oppression. Next, you can't help this week, but look at a story that came out of Detroit about marijuana, about pot. Why does that matter? Well, for so long, I've told you there's going to be some, there's going to be some flashpoints between the far left and the Islamists in their red-green axis, that axis of the Islamists who believe as separatists 
against the secular state, like the Ilhan Omars of the world, who've been so viciously and vehemently anti-American in the way they talk about our troops and what we've done in Somalia and Afghanistan and elsewhere. And then their marriage with the AOCs of the world and their climate change moves and the and the uh, progressivist entitlement programs of of government, etc. And eventually they are doomed to end up conflicting with one another. We've seen this in Europe repeatedly for those who've been studying the red-green axis for some time and now we're seeing it in America. In Detroit, a community, in a story that came out just a few days ago, Detroit's slow walking of the legal marijuana sales has hit a roadblock in an area that is basically mass, the, the most significant employer is General Motors Assembly Plant. But it's a Muslim-majority township of Hamtramck, Michigan. And like thousands of cities across the country, our own Arizona here now has legalized marijuana and various municipalities are beginning to have this debate. Is that are they going to allow marijuana businesses to operate within the borders of their city? Now, the interesting thing is that this city is predominantly liberal. And yet the majority out of the seven city council people, four of them are Muslim. And you see that Pleasant Trees, a company, was allowed to open the first weed shop in November 2020 to sell cannabis in Hamtramck City. City of basically a little over 20,000 people. It's not very big. But it's surrounded by Detroit, Michigan's largest uh, it's brought by Detroit, Detroit, Michigan, and has a significant liberal influence. I'm talking far left liberal. And the Muslim community there is mostly of Yemeni and Beng- Bangladeshi extraction. But what's happening? The mayor, Karen Majewski, Supporter of marijuana businesses said the reactions have ranged from delight to horror. What does she mean? Most of the horror was expressed by members of the Muslim community, but their concerns will sound familiar to residents of any municipality that's debated how to handle marijuana businesses. In particular, they cited, according to Politico, fears that crime will increase and that kids will have easier access to the drug. And there are many conservatives, for the most part, have been very worried about the gateway drug aspect of marijuana use. And yes, it might not uh, supposedly cause that much change in somebody's faculties. And however, it has a significant component of increased psychiatric illnesses and other exacerbations. And we can get into the whole, I don't want to get into the debate over legalization or not. I have a a lot of good friends that I share a lot of political ideologies with, and yet we disagree on marijuana legalization. But the interesting thing here is that this flashpoint, the mayor said, at the end of the day, we know who the majority of the city is. It's Yemenis and Bengalis. 
I'm sorry, that wasn't the mayor, that was the city council member, Fadil al-Marsumi. They said after a five-hour planning meeting in December devoted to the marijuana debate, they don't want it here and we have to respect them. They're our constituency. But the overwhelming majority of quote-unquote white residents who spoke at the meeting voiced support for allowing marijuana businesses to operate, often citing the city's financial struggles as a reason to welcome them. I think the cannabis industry is a pot of gold, said Gene Johnson. City Council voted 4-3 to three to ban marijuana businesses from operating in Hamtramck with the voting split along Muslim and non-Muslim lines. Split along that line. The three non-Muslim people voted against, I'm sorry, four allowing marijuana businesses to come and the four Muslims voted against it. Now, how did the city council get here? Well, it's been debating it for some time. And now they're trying to establish some rules. And and then the political piece goes on at length to explain how they're deflecting and deferring dealing with it because the, the, the typical red-green axis that worked together so well to hate Trump, to hate the right, to do so many things with a common enemy now found an issue that they disagree on. And I think... Yes, obviously, every movement has some issues that they may disagree on, but some are flashpoints that highlight a much deeper, deeper conflict of values. And the conflict of values here is the completely atypical approach that the Islamists have to Islamic issues, right? So if they believe in family values, if they believe in sort of a moral society, if you will, it makes no sense for them to harbor politically with a far left that now already in a few days the president uh, has enacted an endorsement of, of transgender uh, positions and sports and others that is just flies in the face of what many Islamists would endorse. Now you may say those are small issues. But they are flashpoints to show, to highlight some of the, and in medicine we call these pathognomonic findings. What's a pathognomonic finding? It's a particular symptom that can be then whittled down to defining an illness. As when that symptom comes up, it can actually define that that's the illness that the person has. Well, Islamism, when it comes into conflict with the left on issues of, be it transgender rights, gay rights, pot legalization. It becomes pathognomonic of the dishonesty of Islamists in dealing with the left. The dishonesty of Islamists in their approach to politics in Western secular liberal society. They don't believe in freedom. If they did, they would embrace legalization and actually begin owning marijuana businesses, and they don't. Because at the end of the day, to them, their position with the left is simply one of expediency and utilitarian political ethics where the ends justify the means. So there's some utilitarian ethicists that that will believe that can that that or unethicists if, if there is such a term that would embrace terrorism because the ends justifies the means in a militant way. And then there's nonviolent civilizational jihadists who don't believe in attacking anything violently, but will often create political alliances in which the ends justifies the means.
And I think that's what there is to learn from what's happening in this small little Detroit suburb of Hamtramck City. Is that the Islamists are deceivers. They're dissimulators. They will pretend to be something on the outside because they have an agenda to advance internally and globally in the relationships that they make globally as the insurgents that they are domestically. Globally, they make relationships with Turkey, Qatar, Iran, Khomeini, and others. Domestically, they make relationships with the red-green axis of the left only to simply have as the fulcrum, the foundation of who they are being the advancement of the supremacism of political Islam. And until we reform that, we're not going to defeat them, but we need to expose what they are in this little vignette on Hamtramck City, Michigan, says it all. Last, it is amazing to me what's happening in France. I told you, every week, as, well, as often as there's an appropriate update, I'm going to bring you that update and discuss it with you. Because the, the eye on the ball has continued in France. And I don't know if it's coming necessarily or only from President Macron, but there is a cultural battle happening now between their 10% or so Muslim population and the rest in the battle of sort of French, French identity of the secular system of laïcité versus the Islamist separatism. And especially its nonviolent component. To the point that now Islamic leaders have come together to sign a charter of principles. Things in the United States that we tried to bring up after 9 11, after 7 7 and 2005, and others in Britain, we tried to bring some of this up. And we were told by the Islamist groups and, and the left that somehow we were doing a loyalty test, etc., which is nonsense. It's not a loyalty test. It's about having a faith community begin to adhere to the principles of a society that they embrace as citizens, that they embrace as a social contract with a legal system that is an oath of citizenship that they take. Now, many of them may not have taken that oath because they are birth, birthright citizens, but they should. They still do. My family, my parents took it as they became naturalized citizens, but I took it as a naval officer, and I certainly have lived by it and would defend it to my last breath to protect this country against foreign and domestic enemies, as we swear to. Now, this week, the representatives of the French Council of the Muslim Faith, CFCM, the French Council of the Muslim Faith said earlier this week that they agreed on a charter of principles which would define an Islam of France after months of tense negotiations among Muslim representatives and with French authorities. The charter is meant to ensure Muslim religious leaders and organizations align with the core values of the French Republic, emphasizing that Islam and the Republic are perfectly compatible. Now, I'm starting to get worried here. Are they compatible? If they are, we wouldn't need reform. We need reform because Islamism, which right now is the dominant normative interpretation of Islam, is not compatible. But having said that, a charter that says that while some form of Islam is, begins to insist that you have this debate. So I will tell you that I think this is a good move. 
Now, are these imams telling the truth as I go through this with you right now? I don't know. I don't, maybe they're not. They might be dissimulating. They might be simply telling them they are so the French government and the French community and culture gets off their back. Well, once they begin to get the diagnosis right and begin to venture down some treatments, you're going to begin to see where the differences are. But if you don't even venture down the right diagnosis and don't even venture that there's a treatment needed, you will never see where the incompatibilities are. So therefore, I tell you, I believe this is the right route. French President Macron pushed for the charter as part of his government's measure to combat Islamist radicalism, along with a law, quote-unquote, reinforcing Republican principles, introduced Monday this week in the National Assembly. The text supports the French ideal of laïcité, separation of church and state, and rejects discrimination, gender inequality, and certain cultural practices which claim to belong to Islam. Article 6 of the Charter mentions the struggle against all forms of instrumentalization of Islam to political or ideological ends, with signatories promising to refuse the promotion of what is known as political Islam. Signatories also commit to gradually moving away from receiving foreign financing. So this is great. It identifies political Islam, and yet the clerics put in there the instrumentalization of Islam to political or ideological ends. That's fine. Now they could, I'm sure they could argue in a in a bit of internal baseball, if you will. Where they say, "Well, we just the the Al Qaeda's and the ISIS instrumentalize Islam. We don't allow that. We could still have an Islamic state. If that's what's happening, then organizations like ours, the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, would expose that. Would expose that dissimulation where internally we need to push for them to stand against any form of Islamic state." But this is a major step forward. The council includes federations of various Muslim communities that don't see eye to eye on many imams who are often financed by countries like Algeria, Turkey. As the report from Politico said, Article 9 states that denunciations of a so-called state racism are slander. Such denunciations feed and exacerbate both anti-Muslim hatred and anti-France hatred. This is great. It's telling Muslims that you can't label France as racist. You can't label in a general way, just like you expect Islam not to be slandered. National identity in France cannot be as racist. Activists have denounced discrimination against Muslims and racial minorities by law enforcement. The government has strongly denied any structural discrimination. Political points out that Macron met members of the CFCM for lunch this week after an agreement was reached in the early hours of the morning between the Interior Ministry and the CFCM, which serves as the de facto representative of Muslims to the French government. I'm always worried, as I've said to you in Australia and elsewhere, where you have de facto representatives of the Muslim community, but I'm not sure there's any other way to get them to where you counter the establishment of the Islamists. It was the fourth meeting that Macron held since October as this issue has been pushed. Macron said he considers the text to be, quote, a clear commitment to the Republic, an important step. Five of the eight federations within the Council of Muslims in France have signed the document. The officials said the they expect that all will ultimately sign it, but the president will draw conclusions accordingly if they don't. Wow. 
I didn't see any questions there about loyalty oaths or anything. This is about coming to terms with Western culture. And the French, the French are beginning to, to demand that. And so they should as to any country that wants to preserve its existence so that it's not nullified by its guests, by its immigrants that, are no, that should not be guests but should become those who embrace their culture. In America, we had this debate. Secretary Pompeo criticized multiculturalism in his last days as Secretary of State, and all of a sudden the left, Washington Post and others, were apoplectic that, oh, how could he criticize multiculturalism? And somehow he was a hypocrite because he embraced his Italian heritage and others. There was no conflict there. It is one thing to embrace your own identity and your culture and music and food and national origin and all the aspects of who you are and your history and what you are at home, etc. But it's another to reject the insistence that somehow we all be that we all be balkanized in our identity in public under the American flag and who we are under our legal system. Yes, we might have our own various identities as embraced through our names and and, and our languages, etc. But our national identity should be, if we're going to be united, it cannot be balkanized. And hyphenated natures of who we are can sometimes lead more towards balkanization. Racial separations based on identity politics balkanizes more than it unifies. And that's what a lot of what I've been talking about today, whether it's how we treat Muslims on school loans or whatever, it needs to be done in a very fair, equitable way. All right, more to come from Europe, I'm sure, whether it's Austria, France, Sweden, or whatever it might be, I will bring it to you here on our program, on our podcast, Reform This. Hope you're all doing well, staying safe. We all have a lot to cover this year as the year moves forward in the political the political climate that we're finding ourselves in. It's always a blessing to be with you. God bless you all. It's great to be with you. Join me next week on Reform This. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and also at Reform This Radio. And also follow our reform movement at the Muslim Reform Twitter handle. God bless you all. Stay safe. We'll see you next week. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.